0: Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. I don't know the first thing about investing my money and it is all so overwhelming I wouldn't even know where to begin. I love that Acorns makes it so easy and how you don't need a lot of money to get started. So head to acorns.com slash creepers or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Paid non-client endorsement may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com creepers. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors, LLC, Acorns, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorns Securities, LLC. Member Finra sipc For more information, visit acorns.com. This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the roaring 20s. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six, and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. I'm settled in. I have a cocktail. I am here
1: for this story you've been prefacing tonight with we're gonna be here a minute (laughs) Uh,
0: all right well i have a quick disclaimer for this case and that is that this story is just chock full of generic white man names so story my life (laughs) i didn't i I didn't make you a flow chart because my god you're hard to please but (laughs) i (laughs) i did make a list a cast of characters if you will that you can refer back to as needed. So I'm sending that to you now. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real life creeps from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mo Gap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard
1: any of them. This is fun. little character web. I'm sorry. Did you just send me the roster from our country club? Or is this yes. literally, I think Russell golfs with half these names. <laughs> Truly. I told you. All right. I-, I love that. Wait, I just saw that it's titled generic white men names, generic white women's names. Yeah. And of course, yeah. Denise, Cheryl, Kathy. Yep. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? <laughs>
0: And And of course, there's a Jerry that goes by JJ.
1: A Jerry that goes by JJ. Yep. Oh, yeah.
0: Yep. (laughs) This is great. (laughs) I'm so glad you like. I'm so glad you approve. Finally.
1: (laughs) I mean, listen, we haven't like got into it yet. (laughs) All I know is something must happen with Mike because next to everyone is their relation to Mike. (laughs) Mike's brother, Mike's dad, Mike's boss, Mike's wife, Mike's mom. (laughs)
0: <laughs> something does indeed happen to mike
1: do you ever look at stuff like this or like when you're reading these, and you're like who would be like if this, if i was mike in this situation like who would be my cast
0: you know like who would need to be oh my god my no story? i've never thought about that i'm thinking about
1: it now well you would be the first line out it's like mogav and it's like kristen williams mogab's co-host to a crime podcast
0: (laughs) yikes the one that got mogab into this whole mess in the first place (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and vice versa absolutely chowder
1: mogab's cute dog that's it basically
0: (laughs) russell the prime suspect
1: (laughs) (laughs) but america's sweetheart that's that would be the problem
0: that's what they always say they were a perfectly happy couple no one ever saw it coming (laughs) like we are though Yes, you are. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros dot com slash creepers. Tell me about Mike. Okay, I'm so excited to tell you this story. All right. So today I am telling you about the disappearance of Jerry Michael Williams, and it's going to be a long one. I had to read a book. So proud of you. (laughs) Thank you, major shouts to Catherine Denton, who emailed us suggesting (gasps) this case. Yes. It was featured on an episode of Disappeared that I watched, but that episode barely even scratched the surface of this case. So I ended up reading a book called Evil at Lake Seminole by Stephen B. Epstein. My God, this book was so great. Probably the most interesting, most engaging true crime book I've ever read. I highly recommend everyone go read it. It'll be in the show notes. All right, here we go. It was December 16th, 2000 in Tallahassee, Florida. 31-year-old Jerry Williams, who was known by his middle name Michael or Mike, was up before dawn gearing up for a duck hunting trip on Lake Seminole, which is a large reservoir located on the Florida-Georgia border. It's about 60 miles from Tallahassee. It was a usual routine for Mike to get up early on the weekends and go duck hunting. He was a very experienced hunter, but Mike never came home from this hunting trip. Mm. It was like he just completely vanished.
1: Also, emphasis on early. They, it's not like I get up at like seven. Like they are up.
0: No, so pre dawn. Yeah, pre dawn.
1: Like four. <laughs> yes, like it's, four. Awful. <laughs> it's awful. It's yeah. awful. I don't I'm know in. how it's that's terrible. your like
0: relaxing weekend plans is to get up. At the crack of dawn.
1: Yeah, I was in my 20s, so it was like, oh, yeah, I can do this, but like, no.
0: No, even in my 20s, the last thing I wanted to do was be up at 4 o'clock for anything. If I was up (laughs) at 4, it was because I was still up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, true that. (laughs) Well, you know, we're built different, you and I.
0: (laughs) Well, we were when we were 20. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When Mike disappeared, he'd been doing very well for himself. He was making around $200,000 a year. Uh, And this is in 2000, you know, that's a lot of money. And in Tallahassee, that'll go far. Yeah, as a commercial real estate appraiser. But he hadn't grown up well off. His dad, Jerry, was a Greyhound bus driver, and his mom, Cheryl, ran an at-home daycare center out of their double-wide trailer that the family lived in. Cheryl and Jerry, who went by JJ, they decided to save all their money for the kid's education instead of building a house. Mike and Nick grew up in that trailer with a large wooded area, like a large wooded yard for them to play in and explore, and tons of kids from the daycare to play with. It was an ideal childhood for the boys, and it was here that Mike really grew his love for nature and for being outdoors. By the time he was six, he'd learned to hunt with a bow and arrow, and JJ even built the boys a treehouse in the backyard. Oh my god, bow hunting at six?
1: Yeah. I mean, we've covered at length my upper arm strength, but that's like really
0: crazy. For those new here, uh, MoGab doesn't have upper arm strength. She has the arms of an angel. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the song my brother sings every time taking, I mention it. you're taking Pilates now. so uh, Yeah, day change. two, so I'm
1: <laughs> swelling up pretty big over here.
0: The public schools near them weren't very good, so it is Tallahassee. <laughs> People are going to hate us. So Cheryl and JJ spent all their money putting the boys through private school at North Florida Christian School, or NFC, from kindergarten all the way through their high school education. By the time Mike got to high school, he was thriving. He was a really gregarious guy. He made friends really easily. He was student council president. He was active in the key club. He's on the football team. Oh, that guy. He's that guy. (laughs) He's that guy. In ninth grade, he met Denise Merrill, who was a cheerleader at the school. So it was your cliche, football player, cheerleader, high school romance. Mike was head over heels for Denise, who was a pretty blonde who spent her free time volunteering at nursing homes and food banks and was voted best dressed by her classmates. Oh, what a superlative. (laughs) What a superlative. I was best
1: citizen. No, I didn't win. Shoot, I was runner up. That's right.
0: The only superlative I've ever won is most improved, which I feel like is just a backhanded compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we gotta get rid of those, right? (laughs) Like you were real shitty before, but you're all right now. Good good job. (laughs) (sighs) Denise was equally in love. She even later told Mike's mom, Cheryl, that she knew Mike was the one from the first time she ever saw him. They dated steadily all through high school, and Denise had been really close friends with this guy named Brian Winchester since childhood, like since they were three years old. They'd both transferred to NFC from the same private school. And Denise introduced Brian and Mike, and by the end of ninth grade, they were best friends. Unlike Denise and Mike, Brian did not come from modest means. His dad, Marcus Winchester, owned Winchester Financial Group which did financial planning and life insurance. His house was big and luxurious, but he loved the outdoors just like Mike. Brian would take Mike out water skiing, and when Mike started to get into duck hunting, Marcus would take him and Brian out.
1: I feel like I've lived this life. <laughs> like I, I've, I've, I'm in this story. I've, I've been there,
0: you know? Oh, yeah, minus the duck hunting, but the water skiing.
1: <laughs> oh no, not the water skiing for me, the duck hunting. See, we are not built the same. We are not built the same.
0: In 11th grade, Brian started dating a girl named Kathy Aldridge, who'd actually been Mike's girlfriend before Denise. But Mike really wasn't bothered about his best friend dating his ex. And soon, the four of them were almost never apart. They were inseparable. They did everything together. Freshman year of college came around, and it put a slight dent in the foursome. Denise, Brian, and Kathy were all set to go to Florida State, but Mike's grades weren't good enough to get in. He spent freshman year at Florida A&M, where he had a track scholarship, but by the next year, Mike's grades were good enough to transfer in, so he transferred to Florida State, where he, Denise, Brian, and Kathy were back to spending all their time together. So they're all back there as freshmen or sophomores? Sophomores. This is sophomore year now. Okay. So the
1: three were there freshman year. They got all close still.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Mike majored in political science and urban planning. And before he even graduated college, he'd already been hired on by Ketchum Appraisal Group as a property appraiser. Ketchum Appraisal was a small family-owned real estate appraisal firm that had a reputation for being a really great place to work. Clay Ketchum owned the firm, and he became like a mentor to Mike, who he saw a lot of potential in. Mike was an incredibly hard worker who didn't party like your average college student, which I feel is even more rare at Florida State. Yes, can confirm. He didn't even drink at all. When Clay toasted him on his 21st birthday with some champagne, he just like pretended to take a sip. Who is this man? I know. Mike graduated from Florida State in 1992, and he started working full-time at Ketchum Appraisal. Clay said that Mike was the hardest-working man he'd ever seen, and he said that he had incredible energy, work ethic, and stamina. Clay was also living up to his reputation as like a really great boss. When they did well, he treated his employees and their families to trips to Disney and Universal or Panama City. Denise also graduated and she passed her exams to become a CPA and she landed an accounting job with the state. Brian and Kathy, for their part, they both went to work for their family's business. Brian at his father's financial planning firm, Kathy at her parents' printing company. Everybody's doing well. They're all going to be successful people. Is
1: that what graduating in the 90s was like it's like you just can not get college a college job, from, like yeah. a
0: great paying job right out of school. Yeah. So they didn't graduate during a recession is what I mean. <laughs> right. Tight. So Brian, he's working for his father's financial planning firm. He's new to the world of financials and insurance. So what do you do? You start hitting up your friends to be your clients, right?
1: <laughs> mm, I was on a lot of calls
0: post-graduation,
1: <laughs> you know, friends yes. hitting you up. <laughs>
0: So he started handling all the financial planning for Mike and Denise and for Denise's family as well. About a year after graduation, Mike went and bought a two-carat diamond from Tiffany's and asked Denise to marry him. Brian and Kathy also got married, with Mike and Denise serving as a groomsman and a bridesmaid for them.
1: Oh, precious.
0: So December 17th, 1994 was Mike and Denise's wedding day. But at 2 a.m. that morning, something terrible happened. Oh, no. Mike's dad, JJ, had a severe heart attack. Mike and Denise rushed to the hospital, and they told JJ they would postpone the wedding. But JJ wouldn't let them. He insisted they have the ceremony without him, and that Mike's big brother, Nick, could stand in for him as best man.
1: Wait, this was the
0: morning of? The morning of their wedding, yes. Why do
1: you keep telling me these terrible wedding engagement, like newlywed? (laughs)
0: things well everything everything went great the wedding went on as planned and right afterwards the new couple went off on a cruise to mexico for their honeymoon while they were away jj had open heart surgery which thankfully was very successful and he recovered quickly just like things
1: i never thought about i'd never have to think about now i'm like oh no <laughs> someone's gonna have
0: heart palpitations somebody has a heart attack the morning of our wedding I'm like seriously well, their marriage started off beautifully. Mike worshipped the ground Denise walked on, and she saw him as her soulmate. Yeah, now watch me do just like a series of like bad honeymoons. Like, Yeah, you're already doing that. <laughs> See, yeah, I know. I just think you've become more sensitive to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mike was doing really well at work, and he was making really good money, so they had the disposable income of their dreams. They were also still really good friends with Brian and Kathy Winchester. They'd hang out at each other's houses all the time. They'd go on weekend trips together, go to nice restaurants, to the movies, to the clubs. They even took a ski trip in Colorado, all four of them. Brian was still working for his father's financial planning business, and he told Mike, you know, now that you're married, you should really think about upping your life insurance. You know, you have this family that you got to think about. And so he'd sold him a policy for $100,000 right after college. That was his, like, hey, man, help me out, you know, policy. Mm -hmm. But now Mike decided that he should up it to $250,000. He made Denise the beneficiary for 80% of it and his parents, like, the other 20%. Oh,
1: no. Oh, no. It's just a
0: casual conversation about life insurance, MoGav. Nothing to see here.
1: Ugh. We're... 20 minutes in
0: (laughs) over the summer of 1998 Brian and Kathy found out that they were expecting their first child and a few months later in September Mike and Denise found out that Denise was also pregnant their families could not have been more thrilled at the thought of becoming grandparents but soon after the announcement there was a horrible accident Mike's parents, Cheryl and JJ, they were at a fish fry at a friend's house who had just gotten a motorcycle. JJ asked to take the bike for a spin, even though it had been about 20 years since he'd ridden. Yeah, Yeah, he was only on the bike for a few minutes when he crashed and the motorcycle landed on top of him. He was in really bad shape. He even almost lost his sight. And then when he was in the hospital, he got pneumonia They ended up discharging him, but it seems like it might have been too soon, because six days later, J.J. died, and he was only 60. (sighs) J.J.'s death was devastating to the family. Mike and his brother Nick had to bury their father, and Cheryl is now a widow at 54. She didn't know how she was going to be able to do life without her soulmate by her side. And the only thing getting her through this difficult time was the knowledge that she was going to be a grandparent. But I that's
1: still sad.
0: Like, no, it's very know? sad. And now, now like, she's just,
1: probably thinking like, well,
0: he's missing that. Yes, you know? absolutely. Oof. Mike and Denise got her a chocolate lab named Hershey as a gift.
1: And Obviously.
0: Hershey really helped Cheryl get through the worst parts as well, as dogs can do.
1: <laughs>
0: but then Ansley Merrill Williams was born on May 8th, 1999. And she was just the spitting image of Mike just after he was born. Ansley's birth gave Cheryl a reason for happiness again, but Denise struggled. She suffered from postpartum depression, and because of this, Mike really stepped up. He absolutely loved being a dad and loved taking care of Ansley. She was the light of his life. As hard as he worked at his job, that's how hard he worked to make sure Ansley was taken care of. He'd come home several times a day to check on her and Denise. He'd come home from work to make dinner every night, read to Ansley, and get her to bed, and then he'd go back to the office, working well into the night. He did this almost every single day.
1: My goodness.
0: Sometimes when Denise was having a really bad day, he'd even bring Ansley into the office with him, and he'd like put her under her de- his desk and rock her to sleep in her little car seat with his foot while he was doing work. He wanted to make sure he was fully present in her life. Eventually, Denise went back to her CPA job, but just part-time while her mom watched Ansley for her. When Denise was at home, she started constantly calling Mike and asking him to do stuff for her. Every time she got hungry, she'd call him at work and ask him to leave and bring her food. If she was low on gas, she'd go out to the gas station near his work and sit in her car while she waited for him to meet her there and pump her gas. Like you. There were just some chores she was apparently too pretty to do. <laughs> we don't make the rules, okay? Uh, uh, for those that missed our Am I the Asshole mini creep, uh, MoGab is apparently too pretty to take out the trash. <laughs> Not my own words. <laughs> also, if you missed it, sign up for our Patreon. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about the Patreon. Sign up yeah. over there. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike would drop everything and do whatever she asked him to is he like i mean i guess we don't know this but i'm thinking
1: like at an extent even if you are doing that you've got to be a little irritated like they've got to be like arguing and stuff right no i guess we don't know but
0: we would hear some things about some marital issues later but at this time it really seemed like mike's only focus was to make sure that ansley was taken care of and he didn't seem to really be bothered you know, doing all this stuff. Mm -hmm. He never pushed back on it, at least. His boss, Clay, said that they all wanted to be married to Mike Williams. (laughs) Yeah, And his friends all said the same. Mike had earned the reputation with everyone he met of being someone with excellent character, not an enemy in the world. He was devoted to his mom, his wife, his daughter. He was a loyal friend and brother. He was incredibly honest and kind and generous. His friends knew him to be someone with a good heart who just loved to make other people happy. Mike and Denise decided to buy a bigger house, and on August 31st, 1999, they bought a two-story, three-bedroom house that was over 3,000 square feet in a nice upscale subdivision in Tallahassee. It was a really exciting milestone for the family, and Mike just couldn't help but think about his dad, you know, JJ, and all that he was missing out on by not being there anymore. It also made him think about his own mortality and about what would happen to his family if something terrible were to happen to him. You know, he's an avid hunter and fisherman, hobbies where tragic accidents aren't unheard of. And it had been a tragic accident that had taken his father from them, after all. Mm-hmm. So he had this $250,000 policy that he would bought from Brian, but he was making around $200,000 a year. So that just wouldn't be enough. So Mike ended up picking up an additional policy from Cotton States Insurance for $500,000 that named Denise as the sole beneficiary.
1: So how much total? 500 and then how much? Well, 400? right now
0: 500 plus 250. Okay. But but that would not be all. He told mm-hmm. Brian about this new policy and Brian's a little pissed because Mike hadn't come to him for the policy. Right. And he told Mike he should have gotten more anyway. So Mike went to his boss, Clay, who was really like a father figure to him at this point, to ask him if he should up his life insurance policy to a million. And Clay told him that he should get as much life insurance as he could. So he signed up for a million dollar policy with Brian and putting that with the old policy, he now had one point two five million dollars in life insurance that Brian had sold him. He figured he'd just stop making payments on that $500,000 policy he'd gotten from Cotton States and just let, let it lapse. As time went on, Mike really hoped that Denise would recover from her postpartum depression, but after a year, she seemed to still be struggling. He didn't talk about his marriage problems with many people, but he did make some comments that made friends think that all was not well in the Williams home. There was a student from FSU that he was mentoring at Ketchum Appraisal named Damon Jasper. And he said that Mike told him, don't ever think having a kid is going to fix a marriage. He even started drinking to cope with the stress. And he had never been a drinker, even in his FSU college days. Uh He then confided in Clay about an issue that he was having with Denise. They had this agreement in their marriage that if they wanted to buy something that would cost more than like $50, they'd just run it by the other person first. But he saw that Denise had taken out $3,000 from their checking account without ever saying anything to him about it. And when he confronted her about the money, she said she'd spent it all on marijuana to make pot brownies. (laughs) Wait, wait, I'm still trying
1: to, this has come up in several episodes, but when a large amount of money is like withdrawn and it takes them a minute and they're like, oh, let me ask about this. I don't I, like I'm noticing $3000 even if I'm like rolling in the dough. I feel like <laughs> I don't know. I'm just like that's a lot of marijuana, right? I mean, I don't know. This is like that thing again where
0: we're <laughs> like <laughs> that's got to be a ton of marijuana. You could make so many brownies with $3000 worth of weed. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, and I I did look it up, but I could only find like dispensary prices, which are going to be different than street prices.
1: Oh, oh yeah, I, I not, personally like a have person never. You can reach out to.
0: I personally don't have um, a drug contact, but uh... well, I worked at the Waffle House, so if any of
1: my former employees are listening, <laughs> you want to let us know. I feel
0: like even on the street, three thousand dollars worth of weed that you could make so many, too many brownies. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking of Delroy, two million dollars worth of booze, dog. Three thousand dollars <laughs> worth of weed, dog. Dog. <laughs> ah. Uh. He also told Clay that he'd found out that while he'd been on a work trip, one that Denise had declined to go on with him, she'd been invited, she left Ansley with her mom and went to Orlando with Brian and Kathy without ever letting him know. What? Yeah. He found out they'd gone to this like really seedy club in Orlando that was known to be a place to get drugs. And he was certain that Denise was doing drugs.
1: And Brian and Kathy too?
0: I guess so, yeah. And he started to really worry about how fit she was to be a parent. Mike and Denise had this weekly ritual of hosting Friends Night at their house, where friends and family would come over every Thursday to watch the TV show Friends Together. The Friends Night before Mike disappeared was a pretty eventful one. Despite the rocks in Mike and Denise's marriage, they announced that they were going to be trying for another baby. Which I'm sorry, I've always thought is the weirdest thing to announce. In about a month or so, we're going to really try
1: to have another Because this is what that is. In a month or so, we're going to start scheduling when we have sexual intercourse. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And then we'll be doing a lot of peeing in the same bathroom on a stick and watching it on the counter together.
0: And now all of our friends and family know this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They also told everyone about their plans for their sixth wedding anniversary, which was that Saturday. They'd be renting out a room at the Gibson Inn, which was this incredibly adorable historic hotel that was like a couple of hours away. And Denise's sister was already arranged to watch Ansley for them. They planned to leave as soon as Mike returned from a duck hunting trip he was planning to go on with Brian while Denise and Ansley slept in.
1: Just slept normal hours. Not even slept (laughs) in. Just, (laughs) you know,
0: woke up at eight. (laughs) While they did not wake up at four o'clock. So that Saturday was December 16th, 2000. Mike was up and out of the house before the sun rose to go duck hunting. He stopped by his office on his way to pick up his gun. Since Ansley, he hadn't kept guns in the house. And then he made his way out to Lake Seminole, which was about a 60-minute drive from where he lived in Tallahassee. Mike,
1: really? Dad of the year. I'm feeling it. Like, I'm just... I know. I I don't ever like to go in too early on someone because then they're usually the worst human in the whole episode. But I'm really (laughs) feeling
0: I'm really rooting for Mike. Yeah. Cheryl slept in and she got like all the last minute stuff ready for their anniversary trip while she waited for Mike to get back. But when he still wasn't back by noon, she started to get really worried. If he didn't get home soon, they might miss their dinner reservation that night. Around one, she finally called her dad, Warren Merrill, to let him know that Mike wasn't home yet. She told him that something just didn't seem right, and she asked him if he'd go up to the lake and check it out to see if he could find Mike. She then called Damon Jasper, the FSU student that Mike mentored at Ketchum, because he'd gone duck hunting with Mike the weekend before, and he'd know, like, the right spots to look. Those are weird two first phone calls. Why wouldn't you
1: call Kathy if he's with Brian? I don't know why she didn't call Brian. Or Kathy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's weird. I'm going to call my dad and then this random
0: student. Yeah. And it's possible she made other phone calls besides this one. But these are who sprung into action. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. So Damon and Warren meet up at Mike and Denise's house. And Denise is just a complete wreck. She's completely panicking. So they tell her, you know, Mike's boat probably just broke down on the lake. Don't worry. We'll find him. And they headed out for Lake Seminole together while Denise called Nick Williams, Mike's older brother. Oh,
1: my God. Denise, call the Coast Guard for crying out loud. Uh, (laughs)
0: It's like her first rodeo. I don't know if the Coast Guard do reservoirs. The Coast Guard never gets involved. Well, they never get involved in this. They have another agency. Game warden. Call the game warden. (laughs) Yes. So she calls Nick Williams, Mike's older brother. He was over at his mom Cheryl's house when the call came in, and Denise had told Nick that Damon and Warren were headed out to the lake, and so Nick decided to head out there as well. Damon and Warren got to Lake Seminole around 3.30, and pretty quickly they found Mike's 94 Ford Bronco and boat trailer near a boat launch on the Florida side of the lake, but there was no sign of Mike or his boat anywhere. And this boat launch was actually just like an undeveloped patch of mud. And it was really weird that he'd put the boat in there because there were concrete launches nearby that he'd used before. They had a really bad feeling. They just knew something was wrong. So they contacted Florida's Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Yes. or <laughs> Or FWC, who are the law enforcement agency in charge of the lake. And they arrived around 4 that afternoon and quickly had a full-scale search up and running. This search went well into the night. They'd been stalled by an afternoon storm that raged until like 9 o'clock that night and brought with it freezing temperatures. But they continued their search until midnight, when it was suspended until the next day. Not everyone went home, though. By this time, Brian Winchester and his father Marcus were also out searching. And as the search parties packed it up for the night, Brian and Marcus kept their search up, guided only by headlights on their forehead. Love that look. Around 2.30 in the morning, about 225 feet from the ramp that Mike's truck had been found, Marcus spotted Mike's boat, a 13-foot Ginu. But no sign of Mike. They called his name and called his name, but there was nothing but silence. The next morning, the FWC crew came back out, and Brian and Marcus led them to the boat, and the officer's first thoughts were that the way the boat was left was really odd. First off, the location was weird. The storm from the night before should have blown the boat east, but it was washed up on the west bank. Also, the engine was turned off, but the gas tank was still completely full of gas. The working theory at the time was that he'd been, like, thrown from the boat, but if that was the case, the engine should have still been running until it crashed into something or ran out of gas mm-hmm, the shotgun was still zipped up in a zippered case, and there was a bag full of decoys. If he'd been hunting, why weren't the decoys scattered out on the lake, and why was the gun still zipped up? Were the decoys wet? no that had so not then been he used. didn't even make it out right, and the gun was still like closed up and zipped, yeah, they figured he'd fallen out of the boat near where they found it. The water's only like three to five feet deep there. And even though it's choked with vegetation, his body should have been easy to find. But it wasn't there. So they spoke with Brian, who often went duck hunting with Mike, just to get an idea of what Mike usually did on these trips. And Brian told them that typically Mike wore chest-high waders when he went hunting, which, as I'm sure you know, are like rubber overalls attached to boots. And you wear them so you don't get wet when you're standing in the water to hunt. He said usually Mike would sit or squat in the boat while firing his gun, but sometimes he would stand up if he needed to. They searched the boat and the Bronco for the waiters, but they didn't find them, which led them to believe that Mike was wearing them when he disappeared. I have a question. I thought Brian was supposed to be on this trip with him. So, I get into it later, but I guess now's as good a time as any. Apparently, Brian had to cancel. He, like, last minute canceled on this hunting trip. He had called him at, like, one in the morning and said, totally forgot. Kathy has this family Christmas party today, and I can't go. So, he went by himself. So, Mike was going out alone. Yeah. Mm. So, I've never gone... Fishing or duck hunting a day in my life. Not and one I've, time. You've never been fishing one time. Not one time have I been fishing. Maybe off of like a pier. And I got like I've never. I may have caught one fish in my whole life, but it was definitely not on a fishing trip. It was like on the side of a pier or something. And I've definitely never put on a pair of waders. So I was pretty surprised to learn that waders are actually heavy. really dangerous. Oh, yeah
1: and they yeah. still you still get wet it's i don't understand <laughs> you're
0: still wet every time and cold and, and miserable okay that sounds awful to me <laughs> yeah that's fine but if you fall into the water when you're wearing them they can fill up with water and weigh you down and they can be tricky to get out of so that can cause you to drown it's actually the leading cause of duck hunter deaths according to a very reliable chat room discussion board Stop i stumbled it. upon I drowned in my waders really <laughs> Because I don't know anything about any of this. But from scrolling through this chat, it seems to be pretty common knowledge not to wear your waders in the boat. And as an avid duck hunter from the time he was 15, Mike would have known that. He was a very experienced hunter who took safety really seriously. He would have never been wearing the waders until the boat was stopped and he was ready to get out or start hunting. But how do you get out of the boat without your waders already on? Yeah, you put your waders on when the boat is stopped. Not when you're like driving, I don't know how and you, you can do like,
1: that. And okay, for my friends and family that are listening, you know exactly who you are. Don't pretend like you don't. There's like five of you. Please slide in my DMs and explain this to me because I feel like anytime I've been out with you all, you had them on the whole time. Because how do you stand up in like a John boat and put those on? I feel like that's hard.
0: Okay. I don't know. That my that's what
1: everything said. I'm sure those are like the rules, but how common is that, I guess? Like, I'm
0: sure that's what's suggested, you know, like wear a seatbelt. Well, that's what probably why it's the leading cause of duck hunter deaths. (laughs) Yeah, people are putting them on (laughs) before.
1: Can't wait for those DMs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But that was the only explanation that made sense for his disappearance. Mike's friends and family were all so worried. Most of them all came out to volunteer for the search, including his boss, Clay, and Clay's wife, Patty. After that first day of searching, they were so exhausted. The situation looked so grim. So they decided to stop by Mike and Denise's house just to express their condolences. But when they walked inside just too soon, well, I don't think like, I'm so sorry, your husband is dead. But more like, I'm so sorry, this is happening. Like, Uh. what can we do? We've been out all day searching for him, you know? They walk inside the house, they're just covered in mud, you know, from the search, and they were pretty shocked at what they saw. All of Denise's family was there, her sisters, their boyfriends and fiancés, her mom, and all of them were, like, dressed in their Christmas best. They had cookies and punch laid out, and the atmosphere was so casual, it was like a Christmas get-together. Only Denise looked like she'd been crying all day. When Clay got there, she'd been upstairs, but she came down just looking terrible and just weeping uncontrollably. Wait, which one's... Oh, let me pull up my list. <laughs> which one's... Clay is his boss at Ketchum. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yes. On my list. <laughs> so then Clay and Patty went over to Mike's mom, Cheryl's house. And when Cheryl saw Clay and Patty covered in mud, she immediately thanked them for helping out at the lake. Mike's friends and family were all gathered at Cheryl's house, and the mood could not have been any more different than it had been with Denise's family. At Cheryl's, it was incredibly somber. Anguish on everyone's faces, several people were crying. Mike's older brother, Nick, was especially distraught. The brothers had been really close growing up, but in recent years, they'd started to grow apart, and Nick was just filled with regret over it.
1: Uh, And poor Cheryl, first...
0: Her husband... Yeah, I don't know, I was blanking on that word. (laughs) Now this. But Cheryl just kept reminding everyone what a strong hunter Mike was, and how he had such terrific survival skills. She was really hopeful that he'd made it to one of the islands in the lake, and that they'd find him soon. And her hope was contagious. But not to the search and rescue teams. To them, after the first day passed with no sign of Mike, It was clear that Mike must have been the victim of a tragic accident. This reservoir is actually believed to have been an orchard before it was dammed up. And the area where Mike's boat was in was called Stump Field because of all the hundreds of dead tree stumps all over the water, under the surface, that make it really hard to get around in the boat. You have to be really careful. So putting all that together with what Brian had told them, they figured he'd either fallen out of the boat if he stood up to get a shot, or he had hit one of the stumps with his boat and that had caused him to fall in the water. And they hadn't found him because he'd drowned, maybe because he was wearing waders and they filled with water, or maybe he'd gotten tangled in the hydrilla that grows like a beast in that lake, and he'd been unable to get himself out. But the water's three foot high, he's taller than that. Yeah, it was three to five feet high where the boat was found. Yeah, but he wasn't Mm. there. So they're thinking maybe the boat drifted off and he's somewhere else in the water. Yeah. They figured they'd find him within a week once his body floated to the surface. There had been 80 known drownings in that lake and all of them had eventually surfaced. But a week went by and then another and then another. Over the coming weeks, officers spent an unprecedented 56 days and 735 man-hours scouring a 10-acre patch of the lake looking for him. They just couldn't figure out how they weren't finding him because all of the signs pointed to Mike being in that lake somewhere. They brought cadaver dogs out to patrol the shorelines. let the dogs out? Come on. They had dive teams out there looking. They used sonar to try and find his body underwater. Gosh. They set up a grid pattern throughout Stump Field, tying off white ropes to the dead trees that were poking out of the water. They had half a dozen boats out there searching one square of the grid at a time. The searchers in these boats had these like 14 to 16 foot PVC poles that would reach the floor of the lake. And they would go around slowly poking the ground every few inches to see if they ever hit on anything. They pulled up so much debris, but nothing that belonged to Mike. I was going to say, you know that like every few seconds they're like hitting something. Right. Just got to be like, yeah. Yeah, but nothing that ever belonged to Mike. And his friends and family that were out searching would have to leave a lot. Because like if if they found something that they thought might be him, they were like, I can't be here when you pull my friend or my brother or whoever, you know, out of this lake. Ten days after Mike's disappearance... One of the FWC officers spotted something floating in the water. Mm. When he got closer, he saw that it was a camo-patterned bucket hat. This seemed really weird. They'd been full-on searching for nine days now, and no one had seen this hat before. There was no slimy residue that you'd expect a hat in the water that long to have. It looked brand new, almost as if someone had just placed the hat in the water. They showed the hat to Brian, who'd been out there searching every day, and he said it looked familiar, and then he came back with a picture of Mike wearing what looked to be that same hat. But when they tested the hat, there were no traces of Mike's DNA. His head had never been in that hat. And you said the hat
1: was floating? Yes. Which it was is like weird. floating in the water. It's like, I mean, it gets wet, and then it would sink. I don't know, maybe like it's one of those, like,
0: bucket hats that... Yeah, you'd think after a while, I don't know. Well, I the don't know the buoyancy is- of bucket hats. <laughs> no, that
1: wasn't. The- <laughs> I don't know. All I know about bucket hats is I'm not thrilled that they're coming back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Don't <laughs> understand it.
0: No. Same. Mike's wife, Denise, never came out to the lake. She was at home watching Ansley every day. But her dad, Warren, was out there almost every single day, just like Brian. And he'd give her updates as the days went on. He also made up posters with Mike's picture and posted them around town, hoping that someone might have some information. This was the most exhaustive search of Lake Seminole ever. And after two months of searching, they had nothing to show for it. Mike's mom, Cheryl, was getting so frustrated, she ended up hiring her own private search firm from Alabama called Montgomery Search and Rescue, Inc. They didn't find anything either. Hmm. People started to theorize that Mike's body must have been eaten by alligators. And that's why they hadn't found him. Uh. And the longer the search went on, the more that theory started gaining traction. It just made the most sense because there was no way they were just missing the body. The lake had these dense beds of hydrilla under the water, and they figured his body had gotten tangled up in that under the surface and then later had been found by alligators. Fish and turtles might have finished off whatever was left.
1: Feels like a stretch, but like, then also maybe not. You know, I'm like, wait, that seems so outlandish. And I'm like, but maybe not.
0: You know, Yeah, and it's like, is it more outlandish than the fact that we're just missing him when we have this like really thorough search going on? But if this were true, if he had been eaten by alligators, it seemed like he might be the only person ever eaten by an alligator in Jackson County. Mm. Patty Ketchum, Clay's wife, she went to Denise in late January after seeing how much she had been suffering over the past month, and she suggested maybe it would be a good idea to have a memorial for Mike. She said, "We're not going to find him. He's not alive." I know. I don't know how I feel about that conversation, Patty. You like, know,
1: like Patty, I get what you're trying to do here, but maybe but like, like not, maybe not me say that. Like one month later, like hey. Denise, what would help provide you closure? How could we support you? Not right. Like, mm, I don't Maybe think you your husband's going to yeah. show
0: up. Right. Especially when they're still searching for him at this point. It's only been a month. Also, I feel like
1: this comes up often in these kinds of, like, conversations about, like, when do you have the memorial service? And – I don't know that I would be mad if I was missing and then I came back and my family had a memorial service. Like, you know, if I show up like a year later, I don't think I'd be like mad at them. You know? If it was like a week.
0: I don't think I'd be like pissed. Yeah. I think there are a few things that would make me mad if I like came back from the dead that they did that I'll tell you about later.
1: We already know. It'd be get rid of your um, Together DVD or whatever
0: that thing is called. Well, I can't, I can't use that anymore. I hope it goes to a good home, whatever you do with it. (laughs) I hope somebody enjoys it. But that's exactly what Denise asked. She's like, like nobody had ever suggested this to her at this point. And she asked, like, what if we find him? What if he's still alive? And Patty said, you know, well, that would be a joyous occasion then. And we can deal with that Mm -hmm. then. But when Denise brought up the idea to Cheryl, to Mike's mom, she shot it down. She said, you don't have a funeral if you don't have a body. And she was really annoyed that it seemed like Denise had just given up.
1: How long had it been at this point? A month. Like, I feel like that's too soon, but that's just like my own personal.
0: Yeah. Then in early February, Denise's father, Warren, came by to see Cheryl and Nick and just bluntly told them that they would be holding a memorial service for Mike because it was time for Denise to move on. He said that Cheryl and Nick could participate in the service if they wanted to, but he understood if they couldn't. Oh, no. You
1: have no right.
0: You have Rude. no right. No. Like, you're not his dad. You're his father-in-law. Like. Could you imagine? Could you just imagine <sighs> if someone came to Louise with that? If Russell's dad was like, we're just going to hold a, a memorial for, for Samantha. I was going to say for MoGab. <laughs>
1: yeah. And And you tell my mama, like. <laughs> no. Like she'd hold your memorial service right after.
0: The <laughs> same, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, There's Kathy, some We know. Mama bears up
1: there. <laughs> I just can't imagine doing
0: that. I could not have no. I mean, you know what they say about white men, like, where do they get <laughs> the audacity? <laughs> After 56 days of searching, Mike's case was officially closed with a notation in the file that he was still missing. Denise seemed to be completely brokenhearted. She wasn't talking very much. She was sleeping a lot. And she wasn't having much to do with their daughter, Ansley.
1: Oh, no, I was worried about her.
0: Yeah. You know. The day after the search ended, the memorial was held. Tons of people showed up to the memorial. Mike was so well-liked including Cheryl and Nick, and Cheryl had put together a slideshow of pictures of Mike to play and shared her favorite memories of him. Denise was a complete mess, and she hid away most of the day after the service. And that seemed to be the end to Mike's story. That's, like, crazy. I know. That that's just like, you know, now Denise is supposed to move on. Right. But miraculously... In June of 2001, six months after Mike's disappearance, new evidence was found. An angler was sitting in his boat fishing in Stump Field, a place he'd fished in many times since Mike disappeared, when he spotted a pair of waders drifting in the water. (gasps) He knew about this massive search for Mike, and he thought that they might be related to that, so he called the FWC.
1: Question, if you think that there might be a dead body in your local favorite fishing spot, like you're changing fishing spots, right? Like you're not trying to find that on your own.
0: Oh, I saw this in the fishing and hunting chat room that I stumbled upon. (laughs) Yeah, more about that later, please. (laughs) They said there's definitely a dead body in whatever spot you're fishing. There has been a dead body in there at some point. (laughs) (laughs) These waiters were found in the deepest area in the search grid, a spot that had been searched thoroughly before. There was even a white PVC pole still sticking out of the ground. And that's the way the searchers would mark an area to signal something suspicious so that they would know to search it more thoroughly. There was no way those waiters had been there this whole time. Yeah. And when they were analyzed, the officers realized that they were in complete pristine condition. They looked almost new. Like the bucket hat. Like the bucket hat. There were no alligator teeth marks, no punctures or tears. They weren't slimy like you'd expect if they'd been in the water for six months. They showed the waiters to Brian, but he couldn't say for certain if they belonged to Mike or not. And there was no DNA inside the waiters, no way to link them to Mike. So they ended up just giving the waiters to Denise's father, which is weird. Yeah. So Brian called his friend Scott Dungy. He'd been a friend of his and Mike's, and he told him that Mike's waders had been found in the lake, and Scott happened to be a diver, and so he got a couple diving buddies of his to go back out to that spot of the lake. They dove down, and they also managed to recover a jacket and a flashlight, and both were in much the same pristine condition, not like what you'd expect to find. So that stuff was under the water. Yes, that stuff was under the, the water. The waders
1: were floating. Uh huh. Again, doesn't, how are waders floating? They're like so heavy. And the bottom are like rubber boots. They were floating
0: on the water. I don't know. I just assumed That's just, that like, they crazy float. To me. Heavy things can float. I float. No, I know. <laughs> 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 okay, but like that takes effort. I float too. But I'm saying like, it t- once- takes no effort. In fact, it's it's annoying how buoyant my butt is. <laughs> Like if I'm if I'm trying to go underwater, my butt—it's like I'm like this. In a hot tub, I'm constantly floating up.
1: I'm constantly floating up.
0: I'm just thinking they they would fill with water.
1: You know what I mean? I also think it's weird that yeah. they like gave them to who'd they give them to? Denise's dad. Warren. I mean, like, I get that they're expensive, but like maybe give them to the police.
0: Right. But at this point, there's not a criminal investigation. It's just a missing person. Okay, so then they find this jacket and this flashlight. And the flashlight, these are all underwater. The flashlight was even still working. And it was just like a cheap little flashlight. It wasn't like some special waterproof one or anything.
1: Yeah, like a mag light or something.
0: Right. The jacket had its sleeves inside out, but otherwise it was undamaged and in good condition. No algae or sediment on it. The brass buttons had no discoloration. It didn't even smell. You'd think something that had been sitting in the lake for six months would have some kind of odor to it.
1: I smell after I've been in a lake for like one hour. (laughs) One
0: hour, right. But in the jacket pocket, was a temporary hunting license with the name Jerry Michael Williams on it, <gasps> Mike's full name. It was clear as day, which was really odd considering it was a temporary hunting license from Arkansas. So it's paper! That had been printed on a regular piece of paper and was not laminated. But despite a few things that just didn't add up, this was basically seen as proof of Mike's death. A week later, Denise used this evidence to apply to the probate court in Florida to have mike declared legally dead and even though all of those items had not shown signs that they'd been in the lake for six months and none of the clothing had any of mike's dna on them a leon county judge granted a presumptive certificate of death on the basis of those items and the assumption that his body had been consumed by wildlife consumed by zombies or consumed by wildlife what are you taking zombies because mm. as, once they bite you, you're zombified. So you're not feeling it when they're digging your <laughs> brains out, right? You know, I don't know. Is that what happens? It's like a vampire. They bite you and you become them. I, I don't know how that works. I've never I watched one I think in most zombie. of the zombie lore, that's what happens. Mm. It's like a disease that's spread through. Oh, I'm never biting. watching a zombie anything. I watched one episode of The, Waking Dead and the no, Walking Dead. The Walking others. Yeah, I don't even know what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my The Walking Dead. Yeah, again, very stressful. Too stressful. This hearing that declared Mike dead, it happened very quickly and very quietly. Mike's family was never notified that he had been declared dead. It was actually Brian who broke the news to Cheryl about it in July. He drove by her while she was out on a walk and he rolled down his window And said, aren't you surprised the judge declared Mike dead so quickly? Ew, that's... I know. And Cheryl was shocked, but she didn't, like, want to let Brian know that she didn't know. Yeah. So she said, not with all that evidence, that just popped up out of nowhere. And Brian asked her what she meant. And she said, that stuff was planted, Brian. And he said, no, it was a miracle from God
1: uh brian i already know you put it there so (laughs) she said he smirked as he drove off because first i thought it was denise but she's been devastated (laughs) and i know behavior is not the you know the tell tell all but you've not given me any reason to not trust her so far
0: all right this whole thing made cheryl suspicious she was actually pretty pissed She said later that if she'd known these proceedings were happening, she would have contested them, and she would have had several reasons. First off, at the friends' night at Mike and Denise's, the last time Cheryl had seen Mike, it was two days before he disappeared, he'd said he'd been planning to go duck hunting with Brian. And again, apparently Mm. Brian had canceled on him last minute. Yeah, you don't cancel that. But she said that sounded just a little too convenient. Like, oh, I, I canceled on him, and then he disappeared. And second, she knew Mike hadn't been eaten by alligators. She'd refused to believe it from the beginning because Mike had always told her that alligators don't feed when it's cold out. But when that theory started gaining traction and people started to say that's what actually happened and they gave up looking for him, she contacted one of the top alligator experts at Florida State University named oh. Matthew J. Aresco who worked in the biological science department at FSU. And she wrote to him, and she told him all about her son's case, and when he wrote back, he said, quote, Although attributing the disappearance of your son to an alligator attack may be a convenient explanation for the authorities, the scientific facts surrounding this case indicate that this explanation is virtually impossible. Basically saying it's a convenient theory, but that is not what happened. Right. During the search period, it was around 55 degrees in the daytime, but some nights it got as cold as 19 degrees. I didn't even know it got that cold in Florida. Yeah. The water had been at 58 degrees the day Mike disappeared, but that's already too cold for alligators to be interested in doing anything other than maintaining their body temperatures. And then when that storm blew in, it quickly dropped to 46 degrees. The lake was even iced out as much as 20 feet from the shore. This alligator expert was certain that there were no alligators moving in those kinds of conditions. Yeah. He said even if an alligator had defied all known gator behavior and actually had eaten Mike. (laughs) Gator (laughs) behavior. It would have left something behind. He said it would be very unusual to have the complete disappearance of a full-grown man from an alligator. Well, and all of the clothes that he was wearing.
1: His right, waders and stuff wouldn't just,
0: even like have a bite or a mark. or Right. Nothing torn, nothing showing any sort of struggle. Life doesn't happen biweekly, weekly so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. EarnIn is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the EarnIn app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creeper's under podcast. Subject here available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. So Cheryl started to think about alternatives. What could have actually happened to her son? It was not alligators. He's not in the lake. They've looked. She thought about the possibility that he'd faked his death and walked away from his life. But he loved his daughter Ansley more than anything in the world. She just could not see him doing that. There was no way. The only thing left in her mind was foul play, because if it had been an accident, he would have been found. She tried to convince the authorities to investigate Mike's death as a criminal case, because up to now, the only law enforcement agency that had anything to do with this case had been the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. And they're more search and rescue people than homicide detectives. Yeah, I mean, I feel like their job, their role is done. Right. But no one would open a criminal investigation into this disappearance. Why not? He's eaten by alligators. He's declared dead. Case closed. We've all moved on. But not Cheryl. So Cheryl just started listening really closely to what the people around her were saying. And she started writing down every single thing everyone said. And she started looking for inconsistencies.
1: Cheryl's like that meme of the dude that's like smoking the cigarette with like the all the <laughs> stuff on the wall with the lines. It's but like imagine making this, plans like, in a group text.
0: <laughs> little lady with pigtails. She always wore her hair in pigtails every day. Oh, Cheryl. Her whole life. <laughs> According to Cheryl, one thing she discovered by keeping her ear to the ground Was that right after the search had been called off for Mike, Brian Winchester's father, Marcus, had met with an attorney to ask about the requirements for declaring someone dead without a body or a death certificate.
1: (gasps) Why do people think this is not going to resurface? When people do shit like this, they just don't think that, like, there's going to be someone that lets the cat out of the bag. (sighs) Right. Right.
0: In Florida, the law is that you have to wait five years after somebody disappears if you don't find their body to declare them dead. But there are exceptions to this rule. Pay off a judge. (laughs) They could pay off a judge. That is one way. But legally, there are exceptions. (laughs) They could petition a probate court for a presumptive death certificate if they could establish that Mike had been exposed to a specific peril that was likely to have resulted in his death. But they didn't have enough evidence to convince a judge until that hunting license miraculously appeared six months later, undamaged in the water. Which is weird because temporary license is paper. Also, I don't think you could have an
1: Arkansas license and it count to hunt in Florida state by state and not that
0: it really matters because he obviously wasn't carrying it. Why would he have this Arkansas? Li- like, why would he even have an Arkansas license? He didn't live in Arkansas. He wasn't from Arkansas. He had no ties to Arkansas. I mean, he probably went there and hunted one time on a trip. That's why it's
1: temporary. But that wouldn't serve him any purpose to have in his pocket hunting in Florida. Like if he gets oh. stopped by a game warden, he gives that to them, that's nothing. Right. So some idiot maybe I don't know, had Brian's it. Brian's a hunter found it. knows. But, yeah. Yeah, but all he needed was ID. Something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Look at me, expert on the scene here.
0: Look at you. Also, one of the criteria of declaring somebody dead is that you hold a public service saying they're dead. Something like that memorial service Denise had thrown together so soon <laughs> after Mike's disappearance. Oh, Yes. Cheryl is certain that something shady is going on. But don't worry, Denise had an actual perfectly reasonable reason for wanting to have Mike declared dead, because that meant that she was now able to file claims for Mike's life insurance policies, Mm -hmm. which were three very large policies that totaled almost $2 million.
1: Oh, Brian's one that told him to take out more. Yeah, he was. Oh, why does he want him dead? They were like best friends. Who said he does? Me. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been in the, listening
0: to the same story as me? She'd tried to file a claim for the insurance money just 20 days after Mike went missing, while the search was still ongoing, but because Who did he had Denise But because he hadn't been declared dead, she couldn't get the money. But lucky for her, they found that hunting license in the lake, or she may never have gotten her millions of dollars. And the way she was talking, it was like she was on the brink of financial ruin. Which was also weird, because Mike had about $20,000 coming to him in money owed to him from appraisals he'd completed before he disappeared. And Clay had those checks made out to Denise as the money was coming in. Like, there shouldn't have been a desperate need for the money. Mm -hmm. Cheryl's absolute refusal to believe that Mike was dead led to friction between the Williams family and the Merrill family, Denise's family. Denise decided she didn't want Cheryl to be alone with Ansley anymore in case she ever talked to her about her theories of what happened to Mike. Denise had already told Ansley that her dad was in heaven, And if Cheryl said anything about that not being true, Denise would freak out and treat her like she was crazy.
1: Wait, now we don't like Denise? No.
0: (laughs) No. You dirty little scoundrel. I'm just writing the information as it's coming up. No, you know exactly what you're doing.
1: (laughs) I can't believe you. I hope you feel... We're really terrible about this. This is what? way too soon after Tanya had <laughs> to be over there acting like we weren't all Team Denise. And I you was were too. Never
0: Team Denise. Oh, you bitch. <laughs> no. Mm-mm. I think she was legitimately sad that she murdered someone. Just kidding. <laughs> I can't believe that. I don't know. I'm going to bump true. the
1: mic. <laughs> So pissed. Uh, so what about what about Brian? Were they in cahoots?
0: I don't know what you're talking about. <sighs> Do you want me to just end just, just tell you yes. th- the ending right now and just yeah, skip and can- all the details? Yeah. I don't think that's what the listeners want. And I care <laughs> more about them. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed. <sighs> Carry okay. on. So she doesn't want Cheryl alone with Ansley in case she like says something. So Cheryl and Nick were only allowed to visit Ansley for 90 minutes every Monday at Denise's house, where she would keep a watchful eye over their visit. But Cheryl never stopped advocating for Mike. She knew in her heart that he had not drowned in the lake, but no one was listening to her. She wrote letters to the local newspaper begging them to run a story about Mike. And eventually, a reporter agreed to include Mike in an upcoming article. The article ran with a picture of Mike and included quotes from Cheryl. And people that saw the article called her up to congratulate her on her persistence. Except Denise, who was so pissed. She called Cheryl and she said she wanted to move on with her life. And she never wanted to hear Mike's name again. Or see a picture of him in the paper. She said that if Cheryl continued to try and get a criminal investigation going, she'd never see Ansley again. Oh, gosh. But this just made Cheryl want to work harder to find the truth. Yeah, she's not trying to do you any favors now. No. She knew that Mike's Bronco had been driven back to Tallahassee by Denise's dad, Warren, and it was being kept on Brian's dad, Marcus's property. It weirds me out a little how really involved all these dads are when not a one of them is Mike's dad. But anyways, Cheryl called Marcus and asked him if she could take a look at the Bronco. And Marcus asked her why she would want to do that. This is Brian's dad. Marcus, okay? why do you care? It's his mom. Yeah. She was so annoyed that Marcus was pushing back at her, especially considering that he was not even Mike's family. So why would he have more of a right to his truck? Like, than you don't her? even go here. You don't even go here. None yeah. for Gretchen Wiener's. <laughs>
1: Yeah, none for Marcus, Whatever his last name.
0: So a few weeks later, Denise showed up at Cheryl's with a key to the Bronco, and they went over to Marcus's along with Nick to go look at it. When Nick opened the driver's side door, he realized that the entire inside of the Bronco was soaking wet and smelled like mildew. Ew. Yeah. Cheryl asked Marcus why everything was so wet. It looked like somebody had sprayed the inside of the truck with a hose. Marcus who clearly doesn't understand science or the water cycle, (laughs) said that it was probably just condensation. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, sir. I have left many a car sitting, you know, not driven, and Mm -hmm. it's never gotten wet. Did Marcus also
1: go to Florida State? (laughs)
0: There was a bunch of Mike's items in the car. There was clothes, shoes, that sort of thing. Cheryl started bagging them up, and she was thinking maybe there's something in them. So she left his clothes sealed in garbage bags, hoping that at some point, law enforcement might find them helpful.
1: I thought you were going to say law and order.
0: (laughs) Dun dun. (laughs) But the following Monday, Denise called and said she wanted all the clothes back. And technically, as Mike's wife, the truck and all of his stuff inside of it belonged to her. But it wasn't Denise who came to pick it all up. It was her dad, Warren. And he was furious. He screamed at them, told them Denise will never come here again. They just upset her every time they get around her. He's yelling, his eyes are bulging out of their sockets, and he's telling them that they're the crazy ones in need of psychiatric help. And that Mike was dead in the lake. He told Cheryl that if she were a Christian and in the church, she would believe that her son was in the lake. Oh,
1: I love when we use Christianity like this.
0: Right. (laughs) It's not a weapon, Warren. No. Cheryl yelled back that if he's 100% certain that Mike is in the lake, it's because he's the one that put him in there. She handed over the bag of Mike's clothes, telling them that he better give them to the police if they ever come to get them. But she didn't tell him that there were actually two bags of clothes. And she kept one. Good. Good for you. Three years go by. Three years of tireless and exhaustive work by Cheryl, who never gave up looking, never gave up trying to keep this case alive, to keep Mike in the public eye. She's a small woman who still wears her hair in pigtails, like I told you. But inside, she's a bulldog. In the meantime, Denise had invested all of her new millions of dollars with Marcus's company, who was helping her with her financial planning, and she starts looking for some lakefront property to buy. She'd eased up a little on keeping Ansley from Cheryl. She even allowed them overnight visits as she started up her dating life again. Mm -hmm, Yeah, because that's convenient for her. Exactly. As Denise started dating, Brian and Kathy's marriage dissolved, and they ended up getting divorced and sharing custody of their son, Stafford. Stafford Winchester. Okay. Where
1: is he now?
0: (laughs) I don't know, but I have a where are they now for Ansley later. I want to know about Stafford Winchester. There can only be one. There cannot be more than one Stafford Winchester. Instagram. After Denise broke up with her latest boyfriend, who was a guy named Chuck Bunker, who also happened to be her boss, Brian and Denise started to spend a lot of time together.
1: A lot of time? Mm
0: -hmm. Ansley would tell Cheryl that Stafford's daddy has been sleeping in Mommy's room. (gasps) So Cheryl started watching them like a hawk, and soon enough, they were openly dating in cahoots
1: (laughs) in more ways than one
0: (laughs) in more ways than one finally in 2004 a family friend helped Cheryl get her suspicions in front of an investigator at the Florida Department of Law Enforcement the FDLE she laid the whole case right out in front of them and they agreed something was not right Several different law enforcement agencies looked into it, including the Jackson County Sheriff's Office. And this is the first time that Mike's disappearance is really looked into by law enforcement as anything other than a hunting accident. Now that they're looking at it as a criminal investigation, they all agreed that Mike's disappearance was riddled with giant red flags. Everything about this case looked staged from where they found the Bronco in the trailer to the jacket with the hunting license that was almost certainly planted. They also discovered that the life insurance company, Kansas City Life, had had its doubts, too. And they launched Hmm. a quiet investigation into it at the time Denise filed the claim. So Mike had three policies, two policies that he'd bought through Brian with Kansas City Life, or KCL, that totaled $1.25 million, a million-dollar policy and a quarter of a million-dollar policy. Mm-hmm. As well as that $500,000 policy that he'd purchased from a different company, Cotton States, that he was just going to let lapse.
1: Which I didn't know you could do. Like, if you just – when you said quit paying on it, you meant, like, he just – Yeah, like- he
0: was just going to stop paying the premium and let the policy lapse so he wouldn't oh, have it anymore. Okay. Turns out, Denise had not let that policy lapse – She'd sent in a check for almost $400 in April, four months after Mike's disappearance, to cover the premium of that policy. So it was after his disappearance, but before he'd been declared dead. He declared dead. And when she filed the claim for the money, she only listed the $250,000 policy with KCL. She didn't list the million-dollar policy, so Cotton mm-hmm. States didn't know she also had that million-dollar policy. Oh, something smells fishy. KCL had first been notified about Mike's death 11 days after he disappeared. It had been called in by Marcus Winchester, Brian's dad, who had explained that Mike had drowned after falling out of his boat. Eight days later, Denise signed a claim form seeking payment on the policies. This is 20 days after Mike's disappearance. The search went on for 56 days, yeah, and Brian signed the form as a witness. Brian, right, Like, this is too messy with them mm-hmm. all. Yeah. Remingled. That's why I sent you a list of cast of characters. <sighs> KCL yeah, had no knowledge about the Cotton States policy at all, the $500,000 policy. But their investigation into it didn't turn up any evidence of fraud. So once the death certificate came in, KCL paid her out $1.3 million, and then Cotton States paid her $504,000, almost $2 million in total. That's crazy. I know. But now the case has new eyes on it. And the new investigators all agreed that Mike did not die in Lake Seminole, that this whole thing had been staged to look like a hunting accident. But the most they could say was that it was a suspicious missing person. The criminal investigation had so many obstacles in its way that it made it so hard to make any progress. Because everyone had initially thought they were looking at a boating accident, none of the evidence had been handled correctly. Searchers had trampled all over the area where his truck and trailer were found. Items taken from the lake had not been preserved. His home had never been searched or his boat and trailer which had been left at marcus winchester's house for months and then things look even it's like all soggy which i still don't understand and it's all soggy my only thinking because that's never explained or at least i i never saw that 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 had been explained in there no my only thinking is that when she said she wanted to get to look in the truck they went and just sprayed it all down in case there was any like Evidence Hmm. in the truck, but I don't think there really was anything because I do, I do know what happened, and I don't think that there was anything in the Bronco. Oh, so this is closed at this point. Like we will have a solution. Yes. Okay. You will know exactly what happened by the end of this. Things look even more suspicious when, in 2005, Denise and Brian Winchester get married. Shut up. Wedding bells. Ew, Mm -hmm. hell's bells. (laughs) Oh, hell's bells. Investigators are not blind. They can see that there's only two people who really benefited from Mike's death, both personally and financially. And that's Brian and Denise Winchester. And neither of them were talking. Brian gave one interview to Derek Wester, who was an investigator with the Jackson County Sheriff's Department where he told them he'd spent the entire day of Mike's disappearance with Kathy, and they'd traveled to Georgia together with their son Stafford to go to her family Christmas party. But after that, he lawyered up and refused to speak to them again. Denise also gave one interview with her lawyer, the same lawyer as Brian. Her interview was riddled with inconsistencies from what investigators had been told before. But Cheryl would not give up. She knew Brian and Denise had something to do with Mike's death. Kathy had even come to visit her a few years before to tell her that she had been tormented by a piece of information she had that she had never shared. Brian actually did not have an alibi for the time Mike went missing. Remember, Mm. he was supposed to be on that hunting trip with with Mike. But said he'd canceled last minute because he had to go to Kathy's family Christmas party. He told police that he spent the whole day with Kathy, but he had not been home when Kathy had woken up that morning, and <laughs> she left for her family Christmas party around two thirty, and he still wasn't home. She had to drive there with Stafford alone, and when he showed up to the Christmas party well after four, she was furious that they hadn't all rid together, and he told her that he'd had a bad day on the lake because he said he'd been hunting at Lake. Mikasuki.
1: that's not the same
0: one that's not the same lake kathy found out that brian was supposed to meet her dad jimmy aldridge for a hunting trip and her dad had waited for him for two hours at their meeting spot and brian had never showed up and brian called jimmy to apologize saying that he overslept so he's like making hunting trip plans with mike but then canceling on him, and he also had hunting trip plans with Jimmy, but he didn't show up for those. And then he's telling Kathy he had a bad day on the lake. It doesn't show up to Georgia till after four.
1: Yeah, like that's just not even a good. And it's weird that it would come
0: out so late. Well, Kathy knew about this, but she didn't want to say anything. Ah, uh, you didn't know, want, yeah, she didn't. But it had just been right. like driving her crazy. This information. And then I think it just got so late after the fact that she kind of didn't know what to do about it at that point, you know, and she went and Mm -hmm. told Cheryl. But then Kathy told Cheryl that she also had her suspicions that Brian and Denise had started their relationship long before Mike had even disappeared. Mm, That's sad. She then gave a letter to the investigators from Denise's ex, Chuck Bunker, that said that Denise and Brian had been leading a double life that few people were aware of. The letter stated that their relationship was not a normal affair and involved decadent sexual behavior with various people, strippers, and other sordid acts. At one point, Chuck had been in Atlanta with Denise, this was while they were still together, and Mm -hmm. Brian had come and confronted them at this hotel, and then he held them captive with a gun. For an entire night. What? Yeah, it was a weird, wild story. Like, they were in the lobby of this hotel. Brian comes up furious, starts screaming at Denise. I think she was, like, dating Chuck to make Brian jealous. Right. At the time. Because, okay, so what had happened was. (laughs) Yes, tell me. (laughs) Denise and Brian had been having this affair, but they were exclusive to each other. Which was why, like, Denise had stopped having sex with Mike. Brian had stopped having sex with Kathy. They were only having sex with each other, and which then, is like
1: so weird. They were
0: exclusively with cheating the, yes, yes. together. And then um, Brian was cheating on her with somebody else, and share Cher- and uh, Denise found out about it, and so she got mad. So that's she starts dating all these other people. Like she dated this other guy before Chuck as well, and she starts dating Chuck. And Brian's getting all jealous. He's in a rage. He shows up to this hotel. He has a gun and he like holds them hostage with this gun all night. I can't remember what, like he let them go, obviously. Yeah. Chuck said. that not come out, you know? Right. Chuck said that Denise and Brian were extremely meticulous, self-serving and scheming. To investigators, this letter was jaw-dropping, and it told them that they were on the right track. They just had to prove it. And then they were also able to find two eyewitnesses who claimed that they saw Brian at Lake Seminole on the morning of Mike's disappearance. They saw Mike's Bronco parked next to two other vehicles, and they saw three men talking together, both witnesses independently of each other, pointed to Brian's photo in the photo lineup. (gasps) Cheryl, meanwhile, continued to take out ads in the newspaper. She would take out these like full page ads that would just describe the entire case and anything else she could do to try and publicize this case. She'd make, like, signs and hold, like, picket signs and hold them on the side of the road, like, missing, have you seen my son? Like, she was even able to get the show Disappeared to do a segment on the case in late 2011, which was one of the sources for this. But again, like, that show did not even scratch the surface. (sighs) In 2006, a reporter for the Tallahassee Democrat named Jennifer Portman she saw one of those ads that Cheryl had placed in the newspaper. Yeah. And she picked up the torch with Cheryl. She started writing article and article and article about it in the uh, Tallahassee Democrat. But by 2011, the investigation had really fizzled out. The investigator with the sheriff's office, Derek Wester, he'd retired after spending years and years on this case, longer than anybody. Everyone else had been replaced. Always happens. Well, Brian and Denise's refusal to talk had really ground this investigation to a complete halt, especially since anything they said to each other fell under spousal privilege, so those conversations were all protected. Kathy had been threatened by Brian and so she'd become less willing to assist with the investigation. What a weird concept. Yeah.
1: Spousal thing. Yeah. I mean, it's just so like
0: interesting. Yeah, it's the sanctity of marriage, I guess. But Cheryl continued her fight. At this point, it's been 11 years since Mike's disappearance. She's been completely cut off from any contact with Ansley by Denise. But she was still holding out hope for Mike. On New Year's Day of 2012, Cheryl started a letter-writing campaign to the governor, Rick Scott. Every single day, she would write him a letter asking him to open an investigation into this case with another agency besides the FDLE, because she kind of thought they botched it. I don't think they did. I think they really didn't have any evidence, no leads, nothing to go on. Everybody kind of knows Brian and Denise had something to do with it, but, like, there's nowhere to take it. There's nothing to point them, nothing to prove it. She wrote over 200 letters. Not a single one of them were ever even acknowledged. And she discovered... (gasps) that that was because the governor's office had been forwarding them unopened to the FDLE, who was throwing them in a case file. Cheryl was pissed. Hmm. But the years hadn't been so kind to Denise and Brian's relationship either. Yes. they bought this 5,000 square foot, $650,000 waterfront home. But before they could even move in, Denise had thrown Brian out of their house.
1: She said...
0: Well, she said, if he had any hope of reconciliation, he'd have to go see a counselor, as well as attend twelve-step meetings and multi-day workshops to address his addictions to alcohol, pornography, and sex.
1: Uh, Denise, you bought three thousand pounds of weed. Or what was it? Three thousand, not pounds. What was it?
0: Dollars worth of weed. Dollars. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is more? Three thousand pounds, right? <laughs> three, definitely three thousand. That's that's one and a half tons. <laughs> Oh, good for you for knowing that. I don't. So Brian tried to meet her demands, but nothing worked. She would not come back, and she ended up filing for divorce. Then Brian's son, Stafford, who's 17 at this point, had been going through his phone. He'd been going through Brian's phone, and he found tons of pictures of Brian with sex workers. Stafford told Kathy and Denise about the pictures and said that he was moving in with Kathy for good. Yes. Brian had no one, and this led to a full-blown depression. And then there was lots of stuff about this, yada, yada, he's depressed, yada, yada, bought a gun, yada, yada. Then he kidnapped Denise. What? That escalated. Welcome to the beginning of his downfall. Okay, he waited for her one That's night. That's the beginning? Not killing <laughs> his friend? Well, of his downfall. That was kind of the beginning of his, like, upward swing, you know? He becomes a millionaire, yada, 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 yada. He waited for her one night while she was driving home and jumped in the back seat and he pulled out a gun and told her to drive. And she asked him what he wanted and apparently this was all his grand scheme to win her back
1: because mm, nothing says romance like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know, it's always so funny though because i'm sure denise was like oh my god brian what are you doing you're acting crazy you know and it's like mm-hmm. they're always so surprised i'm like oh you didn't expect the guy that helped murder your husband to be a little unhinged and possibly kidnap you you know they're always so surprised by their behavior
0: when it's towards them yeah yeah i know he told her he would do anything for her, and he begged her to call off the divorce because he was so miserable, and he said he didn't have anything to live for. Mo Gavis oh. is yawning. Oh,
1: I'm so sorry. <laughs> Couldn't I thought, be less interested up. in Brian's, no. like, <laughs> <stand>
0: problems.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have no sympathy for him.
0: <laughs> Denise finally managed to talk him down, and he allowed her to drive him back to his truck, and she dropped him off. But it turned out that Brian had other reasons for not wanting this divorce to go through. He was terrified that once their conversations were not under spousal privilege anymore, she was going to tell the police what he had told her about Mike's murder. (sighs) So after dropping Brian off, she drove straight to the sheriff's office to report the kidnapping. But as she told them about the kidnapping, they start asking her questions about Mike because they're like, Oh, like, oh, great. She's here. She's eager to talk to us. This might be the opening that we need to finally solve this other case. They try to throw her off guard and they ask if she knows where his body is. And she says, oh, I have an idea. Oh, dang. But then she just insists that he's in the lake. It's what she's always believed. He's in the lake. The agents tell her how those waiters appearing out of nowhere were actually such a huge red flag that it ended up leading investigators to start to start thinking he actually wasn't in the lake. Yeah. Denise started to look a little uncomfortable and it didn't help when they told her that they'd recovered Mike's Bronco and his boat. At this time, they were in like yard, like trash yards, whatever you call them, you know.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And they said they were going to have a good look at them. Denise refused to talk any more about Mike and just told them she wanted an order of protection against Brian for her and for Ansley because of the kidnapping. The agent said he had no doubt that Brian will be located and put in jail for the crimes he has committed. Oh. And he was right. Brian was arrested and charged with kidnapping, domestic assault, and armed burglary. Two of those charges are felonies. I don't even want to know which one isn't. And once <laughs> he was in prison, because I'm pretty sure it's domestic assault. <laughs> yeah. And once he was in prison, Brian started trying to bribe people to tamper with evidence and stuff like that. Word got around pretty quickly that he was like doing all of that. And so his lawyer knew the only way to limit the amount of time on his sentence was to make a deal. In Wheelin the deal. Wheeling and dealing. Wheeling and dealing. In the deal. They agreed that Brian would answer any and all questions about the disappearance of Mike Williams, but that he would basically have immunity for whatever had happened to Mike. Even if it turned out he'd killed his best friend in cold blood.
1: How is that possible?
0: I mean, I understand how deals work, but that seems like... Well, state attorney Jack Campbell hated this offer. But he knew without it, Brian would take his knowledge of what happened to Mike to the grave. With the deal, Brian would face no punishment if he turned out to be the murderer. But Cheryl and Nick would have closure, and maybe they'd still be able to get justice for Mike somehow. And so they met with Brian, who totally spilled his guts. Every oh, word recorded. <gasps> And investigators were able to corroborate the most critical details, proving that Brian had lived up to his word, and this was the real truth of what happened to Mike Williams.
1: Oh my god, I'm on the edge of my seat!
0: Mike had been looking forward to that duck hunting trip that he'd be going on with his best friend of 16 years, Brian Winchester. Brian had told Mike that they were going to go to this secret special spot on Lake Seminole where there were lots of ducks. Brian suggested meeting up at a gas station, and then Mike could follow him to the spot. Hmm. Mike headed out around 4 a.m., stopping by Ketchum Appraisal to pick up his gun. He met up with Brian, who checked to make sure he'd brought his waiters, and they headed away. Brian said they were running late, and they needed to put their waiters on before getting in the boat. And despite knowing the dangers, Mike did what his friend asked, and both of them jumped in the boat, waiters on, and went out to Stumpfield. When they got a couple hundred yards away, Brian said there was something wrong with the motor, and he asked Mike to take a look at it. And when Mike did, Brian shoved him overboard, revved the engine, and steered the boat away from him. Mike was desperately trying to get out of his waders in the water, and he finally managed to free himself from the waders and his hunting jacket, but Brian was circling around him in the boat. So Mike managed to grab onto a tree stump, and he got himself to safety. And that's when Brian pulled out a shotgun and shot Mike in the face.
1: Why? Need answers.
0: He pulled the boat up to the landing and then left Mike's body submerged in the water as he ran back to get his truck. He brought the truck back. He loaded Mike into the bed. He pushed the boat back into the water and drove away. And as he sped down the highway, he broke down the shotgun into pieces and one by one threw them out the window. My God, he'd agreed to meet Kathy's dad that morning for the hunting trip to establish his alibi. But when he got to their meeting spot, he was too late and her dad was already gone. He got home, he took off his clothes and he crawled into bed next to Kathy, hoping that she'd think he'd been there this whole time. And then he called Kathy's dad, Jimmy, to tell him that he'd overslept and apologized for missing the, their hunting trip. He got out of bed. Kathy was still asleep. She didn't even know he'd come home and and gone. He went out to his truck on the driveway to see that it was leaking blood all over the driveway. (gasps) So he sprayed the blood down and he knew he had to get rid of the body. So he ran to the wall. was still
1: in there. Still in the truck. Like, that's what I'm saying. It was in, and like, inside, not in the bed. I think it was in the bed.
0: Okay, but still, so. Because the blood was, I think the blood was raining out, like, dripping out of the bed of the truck. Yeah.
1: And you were going to go lay down next to your wife so that that was, like
0: establishing his around. alibi like he had overslept he had been there this whole time the right so he ran to the walmart he grabbed a shovel a tarp and a pair of dumbbells <laughs> the walmart <laughs> he <laughs> ran into to the walmart the
1: walmart <laughs> the walmart
0: <laughs> and then he took mike to car lake which was about four miles from his house He drove until the road turned into a dirt road, found a landing, and backed his truck down to the edge of the water. But then at the last moment, he decided not to dump the body in the lake, but to dig a grave by a tree at the edge of the lake, which would keep Mike hidden. And it had. And then he headed out to the family Christmas party. But police kept all of that information really close to the vest. The only thing they released publicly was that Mike's body had been found and that he had been murdered. They told Cheryl they had found Mike's remains and that DNA testing had confirmed it was him, and she was devastated. The hope that Mike was still out there alive had been the only thing keeping her going.
1: Oh, I didn't think she still thought that. I thought she was just trying to find his killer. I didn't know that she thought he was still out
0: there. No, she really still thought that he was alive. And it's Mm -hmm. been, like... 11 years. No, and this is happening in 2018. Yikes. That had been the only thing really keeping her going was Mike, the thought of him still out there alive. Now her motivation was to live long enough to see that everyone that had had a part in Mike's murder was put in prison. Brian was sentenced to 20 years for the kidnapping. And I always wondered when I was first looking into this case, I'm like, how did Brian get 20 years for kidnapping? That seems so steep. And then I was like, oh, they They were just doing what they could because they couldn't charge him with the murder. Yeah. So that just left Denise, who would need to answer for her part in Mike's murder.
1: Answer for your crimes, Denise.
0: It was Tuesday, May 8th, 2018. It was Ansley's 19th birthday, and she just completed her freshman year at Florida State. She had plans to go with her mom to dinner, but that would never happen. Just after 4, police showed up at Denise's office with a warrant for her arrest. This was bittersweet for Cheryl. She wanted justice for Mike, but Denise was the mother of her beloved grandchild, who she hadn't seen in over a decade. The whole thing was just sad, but she said they they did not have a right to kill her son. So,
1: um, yeah. Straight to jail. Poor Ansley, I bet she's like
0: God, poor Ansley. Yes.
1: I'm sure she doesn't realize how much her dad, I mean, you know, she was a baby.
0: December 11th, 2018 was the start of Denise's trial. During the prosecution's opening statements, they took the jury through the initial missing persons case about how there had always been suspicions that there was more to the story than a duck hunting accident. They talked about how Brian had confessed to murdering Mike, but that it actually went beyond that. Brian had told investigators that at the time of Mike's death, Brian and Denise had been having a full on affair for three years. Oh my gosh. During which time Brian wrote over a million dollars worth of life insurance policies on Mike. Like while he's sleeping with his wife, he's also like, Hey bud, why don't you up that life insurance? Oh, that like makes me ill. Yeah. Brian and Denise had started talking about how they could be together. Denise couldn't even consider divorcing Mike. You know, rich widow sounds a lot better than divorcee.
1: Yeah, divorcee.
0: Brian said he would not kill the mother of his children, so he would just divorce Kathy and kill Mike. They'd had this whole plan for months before Mike's actual death. In the end, Denise was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Oh my goodness. Yep. Cheryl was finally able to have a funeral for Mike. She had worked tirelessly for nearly 20 years to make sure that Mike got justice. And if it weren't for her efforts to keep his death in the public eye, there would probably never have been any closure on this case. Yeah, like this is
1: solely from her like, yeah, not giving up her not giving up and Brian
0: kidnapping his wife, the dummy. <laughs> yeah, I not Yeah. I'd chill. I'd chill. Cheryl was hopeful that Ansley would come to the funeral, but she didn't. Hmm. Five months after Denise was found guilty, Mike's estate and all the insurance money was awarded to Ansley. (gasps) Denise had signed over the insurance money to Ansley to avoid prosecution for insurance fraud. And as part of that agreement, Ansley couldn't use the money to pay for any of Denise's legal fees. Good.
1: Good. But is Ansley, like, close with her mom? I mean, I guess
0: that's the only parent she, like, knows, knows. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's her only parent. (sighs) In January of 2020, Denise was able to have her murder conviction overturned since she wasn't involved in the actual murder. But the conspiracy to commit murder conviction was upheld and the 30-year sentence that went along with that. So, 30-year sentence. Ansley Williams is an Alpha fee at Florida State, and she does beauty pageants. She's absolutely gorgeous. Of course. And she was Miss Tallahassee Teen USA. And there's this post on Facebook that is just flooded. Like Miss Teen USA like posted about her. And the whole post, it's public, flooded with people telling her that she needs to go have a relationship with her grandmother and, like, telling her that her mother got what she deserved. And it's, like, so terrible. Jesus, like, this is a real person who has now lost both of her parents. Like, don't think you know a person just because you watched an episode of Disappeared or because you read a book or listened to this episode. Like, leave her alone, (laughs) y'all. Yeah, she doesn't need that. No. And no, you don't know her. You don't know what she's thinking or why she is keeping her distance. Maybe it's just too hard. Yeah, at this point you're... Yeah. You know. So I really thought that this episode was going to be like short and sweet. I watched an episode it Disappeared. I read a little bit of the Wikipedia. Bada bing, bada bong. I have an episode. <laughs> but once I started looking into stuff, I just realized how neither of those even scratched the surface. And also, Wikipedia was just wrong about so many things. <laughs> so I had to read a book, which is why this is so long. Had to read a book. This case needed all these details. And I, God, I obviously couldn't even include everything that was in the book. So I highly encourage you to read the book Evil on Lake Seminole by Stephen B. Epstein. Ooh. There's a lot more in there about the trials and even about other theories about what actually happened. Like, There's a whole camp of people who believe that Brian's lying and that Mike was not murdered at Lake Seminole, especially since the burial was so close to their house. They don't think that he even left the house. And they think that Denise had a lot more to do with it than they said. Interesting. And that is the story of the disappearance of Mike Williams. Okay, do we have uh, shout outs? All right, before we
1: start the shout outs, don't forget, you can send us snail mail at P.O. Box 43296 Louisville, Kentucky. I love you...
0: (laughs) You can also sign up for our Patreon. Come join us over there. It's a good time. That's how you get a shout out is signing up for our Patreon. You can get it at the $5 level. That also comes with a bonus episode every single month. And then if you jump up to the $7 level, you get mini creeps that are like shorter episodes. We just dropped a, an Am I the Asshole one this past week. Yeah. Come hang out. Come hang out. And if you do sign
1: up, make sure you put your address. Patreon's not going to send you stuff. It's just so we can send you stuff.
0: Oh, yeah, because you get a card and a sticker at the $7 level. I knew I was forgetting yeah. something. We uh, mail that oh, you to know. you, and we need your address to do that. So please include your address send it all
1: right and if you do sign up the form for your shout out that we are about to do is on the patreon like main page where all your posts are so go sign up so we can holly your name yes okay i'll start oh i love this because the pronunciation says so why ya <laughs> need my name pronunciation
0: <laughs> uh the awesome ashley so lol
1: so why you need my name pronunciation (gasps) i love it (laughs) you guys are killing it in the phonetic spelling question yes it's so fun absolutely oh my gosh thank you to blair blair Blair, but blair (laughs) that's one of my favorite names
0: because of gossip girl right
1: oh yeah i just always liked it
0: i'm sorry did you just dismiss blair waldorf as like "Eh, she's okay and Maybe not the fine. goddess that she is <laughs> that headband diva that she is the absolute icon that she is
1: <laughs> yes oh i love this mm. major shouts kaylin and cater road trippin' twins tripping twins is hard to say back to
0: forth road trippin' twins back. where are you road oh, tripping road
1: but cater is in cater to you by destiny's child what a throwback oh that was like on their first like the one of the first albums i feel
0: like i do not know that song it's
1: like not one of their more popular ones I
0: feel. i'm impressed well you know I, you're the music person and i'm the movies and tv person <laughs> That's like a
1: sexy song, I think.
0: Oh, okay. I, I bet it is. Yeah. I, I was imagine.
1: listening to in eighth grade in the hot, in the, in the Do you know, with the rose petals. Oh
0: my God. Do you know what throwback I heard recently? Oh no. Came out, heard it played. The boy is mine.
1: Oh my God. They were playing that in the nail place the other day. Shut up. That's it, everyone. Shout outs are over. We got to talk about Brandy and Monica. <laughs> I can still do both
0: parts but, of that song. Oh yeah, me and my god sister is. Audrey. Uh. Oh my god, Audrey, if you are listening, we <laughs> used to do this song right like that. I just unlocked a memory. We would like pick a side. I don't even remember which side I would do, and we would duet this song like we were like That's passionate. It.
1: I just <laughs> thought of our next mini creep. We're gonna do our top, we're gonna make a mixtape. We're not like our top ten like throwback songs. Uh huh, and share it with the people. And then it'll be a playlist. We'll make it a playlist.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yes. Oh, also, just for the uh, for all the peeps and creeps out there, we did a Am I the Asshole recently, and we asked people to send in their own Am I the Asshole stories for us. And maybe we would do a mini creep out of that. We have gotten one. I'm very excited about it. We've gotten it already. So if you have an Am I the Asshole story, please send it to creeperspod at gmail.com because I can't wait I'm so excited. Creep. Yes. Okay. Are we going to finish these shout outs or no? Okay. We'll do one
1: more. Okay. Last but not least, Krista Meekins.
0: Thank you, Krista Meekins. You make us so happy. You Meekins us so happy. All of you Meekins us so happy.
1: Yeah, we love it here. We love y'all. We love it here.
0: All right. And that is our episode this week. So thank you so much for listening. We could not appreciate you all more for supporting us, being with us, listening. Join our Facebook discussion group if you want in on the Waffle House discussions, the Fast and Furious discussions, (laughs) the... You know It hit 500 Oh my god The Anna Delvey discussions Because her show's starting Next week Or this week <laughs> I can't wait for that We hit 500 That was exciting Leave us a review On Apple Podcasts A rating on Apple Or Spotify We would so appreciate it It really helps us out a lot it Helps people find our podcast Which is You know Important You can always Follow us on the socials At Pod. We're You know On Instagram Facebook yeah, Twitter <laughs> Occasionally. And you can always send us when an email. When I feel email. like it, okay? When I feel like it. Yeah, you can send us an email if you have case suggestions or feedback or whatever to creeperspod at gmail.com. We'd appreciate hearing from you. Yeah, make sure to subscribe to True Crime Creepers so you will have the next episode as soon as it drops when I will tell MoGab another wild story. Bye, peeps and creeps.